Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Joe Coluccio, president of Parsec, Pittsburgh's premier science fiction and fantasy organization, discusses Amazing Stories, the first science fiction magazine. The talk was recorded on July 22nd. 2016, at Pulp Fest 2016, in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Coluccio, and I am president of Parsec, which has been Pittsburgh's premier science fiction and fantasy organization for 31 years now. And I've been reading science fiction ever since I picked up a copy of this book in the third grade William Penn School Elementary School Library, The Wonderful Flight to the Mushroom Planet by Eleanor Cameron. It's a great book. And other than that, and the fact that I've been reading and, and loving and, and avidly studying science fiction for almost 60 years now, uh, in fact, 60 years now, I, I don't have any academic credentials. I have taught a course, an OSHA course at the University of Pittsburgh on the history of science fiction, and I intend to do more in the future. And I do these presentations like this one for, um, for Parsec in Pittsburgh. Now, I wasn't around in 1926. I don't know, maybe some of you were. In fact, my, uh, to see this first issue of Amazing Stories, in fact, my mother was born in 1925. So I doubt that she had the impulse to go out and to the newsstand to purchase any of the latest issues of any magazine, let alone uh, the latest issue of, hopefully, <laughs> try this again. No, didn't do that one. Well, there is a slide there, but I guess we're not going to see it. Um, so um, it was, well, anyhow, this is a slide uh, I was going to state after my mother that my father told me as a young man, as a, young, as a youngster, he looked up in the sky one day and he saw this plane up in the air and he decided he wanted to be a pilot. But um, given his pragmatic turn of mind, I don't think he was all that interested in the genre of what Hugo Kernsback came to call science of fiction. So a couple years after my old man's aerial revelation and the birth of amazing stories, Hugo Kernsback had Frank R. Paul create a cover for the April 1928 issue of Amazing Stories that was a symbol for Hugo's notion of science of fiction. And hopefully this one will work. Ah. That, first of all, I, I, I'm going I'm to go through these slides quickly, but this, this is the slide that was supposed to play <laughs> for my mother going out and getting a copy of Amazing Stories. And I will tell you also that, that my, my father did say that story about uh, becoming a pilot, and um, he, his, he really re realized his desires in pre-World War I Depression days. And uh, a couple years after my father flew around in his airplane, uh, Hugo Garnsback did have Frank R. Paul make this cover of April 1928 Amazing Stories that was a symbol for his notion of what science of fiction was. Um, on the editorial page of this particular issue, if we can get this to play here, there was a prize, a contest for $300 in, in prizes. And, um, you can see by the, the chart here that the first prize was $100, and, and in money, 2016 money, that would be $1,400. So it's pretty substantial, really. The first design was by A.A. Kaufman of Brooklyn, New York. The second by 
Clarence Beck of West Bend, Wisconsin, and the third by A.J. Jacobson of Duluth, Minnesota. But Hugo was not really satisfied with any one of these. He kind of liked the first three. So he had Frank R. Paul, who was pretty much his artist for amazing, the years he was an artist, uh, uh, an editor, come up with a final version which was kind of an amalgam of all three of these. And this is what Paul came up with. Uh, in many ways, Gernsback, however, had already chosen a logo, which was shown on the masthead, and, and he told in the words of his very first editorial, the magazine, and this is the logo he chose, Jules Verne's tombstone. And, uh, and uh, in, in his first editorial, he, as he, he, caught, he talked about a definition of what science fiction was. And he stated uh, that it's, I mean, a Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, Edgar Allan Poe type of story, a charming romance intermingled with scientific fact and prophetic vision. Now, I was born in 1944. I think Great Gildersleeve brought me in. It's the last day of the year. I earned my old man $100 uh, uh, deduction for the first six hours of my life, and you know, he never thanked me for it. <laughs> but here's a sampling of the pubs that were on the newsstand on that day, or wouldn't, would have been on that day when I was born. And I urge you to do this sometimes. It's kind of fun to find out what was on the newsstands. Uh, I never saw the April 1926 issue or cover of Amazing Stories until I was in my mid-twenties. And then I'm sure it was on some black and white retrospective magazine article or, or one of the small thumbnails that shows up in the visuals of histories of science fiction once in a while. And although it's said you can't judge a book by the cover, I don't know what you can judge a book by when you first see it. So when I finally saw the scene of the ice skating on the moons of Saturn by Frank R. Paul, it burned in my imagination and really rekindled my love for science fiction. And it made me envious of an age when you could walk down the street to a newsstand and have a choice of anyone from 20 to 40 of these magnificent, wonderful pulp magazines, three-colored, cardboard-covered magazines. I had a similar experience uh, in 1969, when I li lived in Oakland, California, I would stop at the Lowers 24-hour newsstand on Broadway each morning before I, I, before I toddled off to work. I understand that this newsstand, there's a picture here, closed in 2008, and this seems to be the, the after 101 years of service, it, it continues, a, a fate that continues to befall print magazines and newsstands everywhere. But somewhere in the racks, in the science fiction section was both a copy of Amazing Stories and Fantastic Stories. And this time around, although the covers were delightful, I was impressed by the editor, Ted White, who was the guest of honor at this convention, who also reinvigorated my interest in science fiction once again with his, his editorial skills and his story selection. Hugo Garnsback has been called the father of science fiction. It's a controversial statement in a lot of ways, and it's been argued and disputed by historians and critics and fans over the years. However, there is a little more than truth to the claim. In April 1916, 10 full years before the first April 1926 issue of Amazing Stories, Hugo Gernsback explained the reason behind his speculative stories that he was publishing in this magazine called The Electrical Experimenter. And he states, a world without imagination is a poor place to live in. 
Imagination more than anything else in the world makes the world go round. If we succeed in speeding it up just a little, our mission has been fulfilled. There can be no progress where imagination is lacking, and he really set out to prove that statement. Uh, he was born Hugo Gernsbacher in 1894 in Luxembourg City, and he studied electrical engineering at a place called the Rheinisches Technikum in Bingen, Germany. And in 1904, he emigrated to the uh, America on the Hamburg Line steamship, the Pennsylvania. He came to America with a dry cell battery that he wanted to pedal and convinced the Packard Motor Company to use it for the ignition in their automobile. It proved too expensive to mass produce. So Gernsback, ever the entrepreneur, looked other places to make his fortune and he saw that it was difficult to obtain radio parts in America. So in 1905 he started an importing company called the Electro Importing Company or Limco. Now Hugo created the first inexpensive wireless set and he advertised it in, in Scientific American magazine. It was one of his first forays into publishing in fact. And it was sold for so little money that the authorities had to investigate it because they thought he was, they wanted to make sure it was doing everything that he said it was doing, and Hugo was exonerated, it did. And here's a picture of him accepting an award in 1957 at the Henry Ford Mag uh, Museum for his wireless. He also produced a catalog of radio parts with helpful articles in them for the radio tinkerer. Eventually, that catalog gave way to the Electrical Experimenter magazine, which eventually gave way to the Gernsback publishing empire. Gernsback was an inventor at the time of his death. He had up to 80 patents to his name, including number one, well, that's a picture of Gernsback, but number one, uh, a thing he called the ossophone, which was a bone conduction hearing aid, which are still used today. He later revamped it and called it the phonosome. Two is the hypnobioscope which was designed to make you wor learn and work while you slept. I don't think that one ever worked out. My favorite is the isolator. <laughs> now, Hugo believed that it filtered distractions and increased pure thought. And, and sometimes I often work with this on me. <laughs> and I often replace the oxygen cylinder with nitrous oxide, just for some, some laughs. And of course, he invented Google Glass. Okay, okay, he called these the TV glasses. This was a prototype, but it proved that he was not ashamed to look like the original nerd. He started uh, a radio station, WRNY, located on the 14th floor at the, hotel, uh, the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City. The first broadcast was on June 12th, 1925 and was covered by the New York Times. One of the opening speakers was the father of radio. Maybe many of you know him, Lee DeForest, the man who invented the vacuum tube, essentially. <coughs> and the evening concluded with two hours of live musical entertainment. On August 13, 1928, um, uh, WRNY became the first standard radio station to transmit a television picture. This is a transmitter here. You're actually seeing the, the camera. And it was, it was a different kind of signal from the one that was ultimately adopted. Um, the sight and sound from WRNY were seen and heard alternately rather than simultaneously. Viewers would first see the face of the performer and a few seconds later, they'd hear the voice. 
Here's a picture of Hugo comfortably sitting and viewing his television set. I think that's the three inch widescreen model. <laughs> what year is that? That was 1925. He was an entrepreneur, but he also believed that the tinkerer, the inventor, would make the world better through an understanding of technology and science, which he thought would be brought about through science fiction in the pages of Amazing Stories. He was the editor of Amazing Stories for three years, from, through April of 1929. So what was going on in those three years in the world? Well, on March 16th, Robert Goddard developed and fired a liquid fuel rocket. Goddard, who became known as the father of rocketry, so we have the father of science fiction and the father of rocketry, um, became interested in space when he read this peculiar book by H.G. Wells called The War of the Worlds at the age of 16. Interestingly enough, young Hugo Gernsback also uh, looked to the same planet for inspiration, Mars, when he first encountered Percival Lowell's book called Mars when he was a young man. What follows now is a short montage of what happened in 1926. Here are the Frank R. Paul covers for Amazing in the story of the, in the, in the first year of publication. I don't know if you noticed, but most, in fact, mo almost all of those uh, covers had a story by H.G. Wells. Those magazines had H.G. Wells or Jules Verne in them. It was largely a reprint magazine uh, for many years. Frank R. Paul was doing covers. Here they are for 1927. And notice, once again, every single issue had a story by H.G. Wells and a couple by Jules Verne, some by A. Merritt as well. Uh, it was still largely a, a reprint magazine. In 28, you're starting to see stories by other people, Claire Winger Harris and other folks. Uh, it was not as, as much a reprint magazine then. The 1929 issues of um, Amazing Stories. Are they all the same artists? All the same artist, all Frank Paul. Did the covers have anything to do with the stories inside or not? Sometimes. Uh, the first one did, for example, it was uh, the Jules Verne off on a comet. Yeah, they, they did on occasion. On February 21, 21st, 1929, uh, there was a petition to uh, filed bankruptcy against the experimental publisher, which was Hugo Gernsback's uh, publishing company. Um, some say it was this man, Bernard McFadden, a health enthusiast and an owner of a rival chain of uh, very influential magazines that arranged for three of Gernsback <coughs> creditors to file simultaneous bankruptcy claim, which in New York at that time would cause a company to go into automatic bankruptcy. There's no evidence to prove that that happened, but that seems to be the standard conjecture of what went on. Gernsback bounced back immediately and he sent this note off to people, his authors, saying that uh, he still had their, their manuscripts and he intends to bring out a new and better magazine and if you, if you want, I'll publish it for you at the rates. In June of 1929, sure enough, Science Wonder Stories, you can see April was out of business, June he was back in with Science Wonder Stories and it hit the stand. But our path is to turn back to amazing stories, not to follow the history of Gernsback's legacy that goes on after he was booted on after out of, out of amazing stories. Um, 
There is one other thing I want to point out in Science Wonder Stories. In his first editorial, um, he, he, he dropped the name science of fiction. I guess he wanted to leave it behind and started to call it science fiction, which was the name of the field um, forever after that. What followed is a man named Arthur H. Lynch. He was the editor put in charge by the trustees of uh, the bankruptcy after Gernsback was ousted from the magazine. And it's largely believed that still T. O'Connor Sloan, who was the next editor and who was Gernsback's editor as well, edited the magazine with Lynch as editor on the masthead only. There's not much known about Lynch or not much I could find out. In a posting on the internet by his niece, Virginia Duffy, in 2014, she writes this. Arthur Lynch was my uncle. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York. He volunteered for duty in World War I and convinced the French he was a pilot. This led to a little crash and some minor injuries. He had an amazing, in all capital letters, inquisitive mind that led him to fascination with radio, flying, and photography. He had a radio station at the New York World's Fair in 1939. He was instrumental in establishing the radio antenna atop the Empire State Building. He and his friends spent many hours watching Charles Lindbergh. Here are the covers of, of the magazines while Lynch was the, the supposed editor, uh, but T.R. Connor Sloan really was. You can see by the first two that probably Frank R. Paul had two, two in the barrel after Gernsback left. Um, by all accounts, the next editor, T.O. Connor Sloan, was, was a gentleman. He was soft-spoken. He was a very nice fellow. He was a scientist. And he wrote many a scientific treatise. He took over the helm after Gernsback left and, and I guess after Arthur Lynch gave up his stewardship, but he was an uninspired editor. His editorials were as dry as burnt scraped toast. One was on the candle, another on the railroad. They were not considered inspiring for fans of science fiction. <laughs> and he didn't believe, strangely enough, that interplanetary travel, although it gave many a wonderful story in the pages of amazing stories, was possible. The result of his editorial opinions and actions were a pretty much a solid decline in circulation. He was also slow to answer authors about acceptance of stories. This is the story of Clifford Simic, which is kind of legendary. His first story, The Cubes of Ganymede, was reported in the April 1933 Science Fiction Digest fanzine that had been accepted as amazing stories. Sloan held the story for two years before returning it with a note saying that he thought it was outdated. <laughs> Simic never resubmitted that story anywhere and it's thought to be lost. Uh, here are some of the, I don't know, less expensive um, experimental flat covers possibly designed to cut printing cost, the costs uh, that were produced in the Sloan period by a cover art by someone named A. Sigmund who nobody, it's either a, a nom de plume or a pen name or who, nobody knows much about him. And although these covers were kind of slip, slick and modern, uh, they didn't work well in the newsstand because of their subdued color schemes. In 1938, Tech publication was sold to Ziff Davis, which moved it, the editorial offices to Chicago. T. O'Connor Sloan, who was 86 years old, did not follow. This is the last magazine that he edited. And we'll move on if we can here, although it's looking like I'm running out of time, to Ray Palmer, 
who is uh, one of the more interesting editors of Amazing Stories. Ray Palmer is interesting because he had been a science fiction fan for years. In 1929, together with Walter Dennis, he created The Comet, which is thought to be the, the very first science fiction fanzine. He also helped to found the fanzine The Time Traveler with Alan Glaser and uh, Julius Stein and uh, Schwartz, I'm sorry, and uh, Mort Weissenberg. He wrote a column called Spilling the Atoms for the same group's next fanzine called the Science Fiction Digest. And one of the more interesting things that Rapp was involved with was, the, was Cosmos. And, uh, oh, it actually shows up here. You can actually get this online now. It's, uh, it's a 17-chapter space opera serial with authors like John W. Campbell, A. Merritt, P. Schuyler Miller, Ralph Milne Farley, and Rain Palmer, and others. It's pretty wonderful to read. He also was the author of many stories, beginning with The Time Ray of Jander, written for Hugo Gernsback in Wonder Stories in June of 1930. In 1938, Ziff published, as I said, uh, Ziff purchased Amazing Stories from Tech, and they really cut it to Chicago. In a conversation with Bernard Davis of Ziff Davis, Ralph Milne Farley, who had declined the job of editor, recommended Ray Palmer for the position. Palmer became the editor and set about to revive the magazine, and he was successful in improving the circulation, and in November of 1938, the magazine returned to a monthly schedule. In March of 1939, he published Isaac Asimov's first professional story, Marooned Off Vesta. In his first editorial column, he stated that stories would be founded upon scientific research and scientifically accurate, much as Hugo Gernsback did. He added a back cover illustration to the magazines, which were quite striking and quite nice. He added science quizzes to the magazine, and he added humor. And he included many fan letters in the discussion column. And you can see by who wrote them as a These are uh, some of the biggest fans and, and most popular writers of the day. Sam Moskowitz, of course, and Edmund Hamilton. However, it was not all music of the spheres and paradise. Amazing continued to grow, gained a reputation among science fiction fans who claimed that Ray Palmer was the man who was killing science fiction. And Amazing was a magazine that catered to the kid in the street, the working man. Readers of the magazine were thought to prefer escapism and entertainment more than pure intellectual science fiction. Still, many readers thought Palmer added pep to Amazing Stories. So where did it all go wrong? You can see that's actually Ray Palmer in the magazine itself, the cover of the magazine itself. Where did it all go wrong? And, and, and unfortunately, you're not going to be able to hear some of this because it's, there's no sound playing for us. But I'll kind of tell you. Is anybody lip read? I think oh, Mr. Good. Shaver, well, he originally claimed that he spent eight years in these caves with these Darrow and Tarot people, T being, e being integrative. And I discovered later, much to my embarrassment, uh, that he had spent these eight years in the Ypsilanti State Hospital for the Insane in Michigan. I contacted the doctors, and they said he was catatonic. He lived in a world even had to feed him, in this imaginary world of his. But I got 50,000 letters, we ordinarily get 50 or 60 a month, from people who said, Mr. Shaver is telling the truth. And not only that, I have been in the caves too, and I hear the voices. <laughs> 
So Ray heard the voices as well. I mean, he became really closely intertwined with Richard Shaver. And he pretty much rewrote all of Shaver's kind of almost incoherent notes and stories into something that could be published in the pages of the magazines. But despite a spike in readership, many fans become upset and became upset and disenchanted with amazing stories. And it only escalated from there. Ray Palmer became the man who invented the flying saucer. He believed in a Bible that was written automatically from guidance from I don't know where to, some, to the author who wrote it. And it's interesting that a whole lot of criticism has been heaped on both Hugo Gernsback and Ray Palmer as the folks who made science fiction into a lower form of literature. Gernsback accused of starting the science fiction ghetto, complete with pure, puerile, purple prose that featured a lack of characterization, Palmer because of his forays into the occult. Yet the man who is thought of as a steadying influence on the field, who is thought of, who, who is thought of bringing maturity to the field, John W. Campbell was just about as wacky as Palmer and Gernsback themselves. Many of his editorials in both Astounding in uh, Science Fiction and Analog uh, Science Fact magazine were spent promoting ideas that were on the twisted edge of scientific research. Some were part of legitimate research, in truth, but some might as well have taken their place along with Shaver's Lemuria and Fate's Flying, Cross, uh, flying Saucers. For example, there was the Dean Drive that promoted by Campbell. And he claimed he saw it work when it was set onto a scale, on a bathroom scale, and was turned on, it became lighter. So he says, nobody else ever saw that, but he did. He also followed the, the writings of Alfred Korzybski in General Semantics. Uh, and uh, featured in A.E. Van Vogt's uh, The World of Null A, in fact. Uh, this was something that was kind of a failed semantics. Um, he did uh, talk about the legitimate studies of VSP by the Rhines at Duke University, uh, but they never led to any conclusive evidence that, that ESP worked. Um, and here's the Hieronymus radionic psionic device. And I don't even know what this thing does. It, it, <laughs> it, it, you draw a circuit somehow, and in reality, it works like an actual circuit. Uh, that was Campbell. And of course, this famous compatriot of John W. Campbell. He was a pulp science fiction writer. Do you recognize him? The man who said, I'd like to start a religion. That's where the money is. About whom Damon Wright Knight wrote, in a collection called In Search of Wonder that he disappeared into the limbo of the Middle West, where at last report he remains, if only. That's L. Ron Hubbard in Dianetics. So whether or not Ray Palmer or John W. Campbell or Hugo Garnsback or Crazy as Loons is up to you to decide. I believe that they were interested in furthering human potential, and they all developed ideas that helped the genre of science fiction. Howard Brown is better known as a mystery writer. Uh, he was the editor that followed after Raymond, uh, Raymond Palmer, uh, Ray Palmer. He's uh, better known for his Raymond Chandler and Philip Marlowe School of Hard-Boiled Detective Fiction. Of particular note are his Paul Pine mysteries, which he wrote under the name of John Evans. When Brown took over as editor of Amazing Stories in January of 1950, he threw away 300,000 words of inventory of Richard Shaver, the material that Palmer had acquired before he left, which is peculiar. Because legend has it that Brown brought Shaver to Palmer's attention in the first place. The story goes like this. 
uh, Brown was uh, making fun of a letter that he out loud that he found in, uh, in Amazing Stories uh, pulp bin. He, uh, after he had his fun, he crumpled up the letter and threw it into a trash can. And Ray Palmer snatched it back up and told him to run it, the entire letter, in the next column. The letter was the first of many and many stories from Richard Shaver. Brown persuaded Ziff Davis to switch Amazing to a pulp format, to a digest early in 1953. The last issue that Brown edited was attributed to him in August of 1956, but there are indications that Paul W. Fairman had taken over as the editorship. Now, science fiction may have an approach that seems to encompass the rational. Science fiction may have been the light shined by the 18th century with the creation of science. Science fiction may speculate on the scientific view of the universe, which has become more strange as we step into the 21st century than anything ever written in the pages of amazing magazines. But for all that, science fiction is a storytelling art, and it's appropriate that history and biography of these early pulp science fiction pioneers is told through anecdote, in stories whispered to others by those in the field who have passed away, or told by those who have embellished and padded their memories. That process is often what passes for history, and it's always what serves for memory. And you know what? All of it's true. And all of it is amazing. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2016.